Our God is a missionary God, and we are His missionary people. You're listening to The Scent Life, the official podcast of the Center for Great Commission Studies at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. William Carey famously said, I'll go if somebody will hold the rope for me. Uh, We've been in a mini-series on The Scent Life talking about missionary care, and today uh, we have with us a friend of the seminary, one of our trustees, a student, a student uh, from the seminary, uh, Ryan Martin, to talk about his new book, Holding the Rope. Thanks for tuning into the Scent Life. Hey, welcome. We welcome Dr. Anna Dobb into the Scent Life studio uh, as we talk about stories of the scent ones. Anna, bring us a story each week. Thanks. Glad to be here. Um, today we're going to talk about. Anne Hasseltine or Anne Judson is how she's more known. Um, Anne Judson was perhaps one of the first American women to be sent overseas. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, I've talked a lot about firsts in this season. But you have. Um, I think it's important for us to know these women who were trailblazers. That's right. These are our first women seasons. Yes. And so um, Anne became a Christian in a New England revival. Mm -hmm. Uh, She at that point kind of knew that she, a woman, was called to missionary service. Mm -hmm. And although she's known for marrying a famous missionary, Adoniram Judson, I think it should be noted that she felt God's call long before she married him. Yeah. Um, She actually says in in either a letter or a journal, I don't remember which one, she says that the call came not from, quote, an attachment to an earthly object, which many assume assume that she meant her husband (laughs) in that moment, Um, (laughs) but instead came from, quote, an obligation to God with a full conviction of being called. Right. And so she herself felt called to God's mission. Um, But Anne also kind of wrestled with this call, I think. Uh, In one of her journals, she wrote, no female has, to my knowledge, ever left the shores of America to spend her life among the heathen, nor do I know yet that I should have a single female companion. Wow. And so I think she really wrestled with what is this going to look like Mm. as I go overseas? um, And what does this look like? What what does faithfulness look like if I'm the only woman who's doing it? Good question. (laughs) Um, But Anne meets and and marries Adoniram Judson in 1812. And then 13 days later, they leave for Burma. That's right. Uh, She was sent as an assistant missionary to serve alongside her husband. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's important, uh, especially in one of our episodes. We're going to talk about another woman who's probably one of the first appointed missionaries. Um, so Anne's not appointed. Mm-hmm. She's, she's considered an assistant missionary uh, or a help, helper to her husband. Okay. Um, originally, they're heading to Calcutta, India. They become Baptists on the way. We've talked about Adoniram Judson's story, but right. know that she was, I think, a little distraught at, at first about this. She was less excited <laughs> about becoming a Baptist than Adoniram was at first. I think she was, too. It seems like she thought this was a little bit more of a secondary issue than right. Adoniram. And I think she also probably recognized the implications of this change. Sure. Um, And and so I think she was not excited about it. Uh, So anyways, they become Baptist. Um, It causes quite this uproar Mm -hmm. back home. But but also, I mean, through through God's miraculous movement, it causes another missionary society to be born. And they decide to that they will support the Judsons, um, which is amazing. Um, But they're not able to stay in India. So they end up going to Burma. In Burma, Anne actually jumps into ministry and actually learned language really well Mm -hmm. uh, due to her frequent um, necessity of of having to work with Burmese for, like, just managing the house. Right. And so in one of her letters, she describes how just running the house allowed her to have frequent contact with the Burmese and therefore um, allowed her to practice her language Hmm. more. And she says, um, I can talk and understand better than Mr. Judson. 
though he knows more about the nature and construction of the language. <laughs> Which I just think is fun. <laughs> That's a great story. That's um, great. Anne is also known as an author. I don't, I don't know that I knew that. Yeah. Um, but she was an author, and Ruth Tucker describes her as the first woman missionary in modern times to attract a wide hearing on the subject of missionary life. Wow. And the condition of the, quote, heathen overseas. Okay. Um, she actually also had her own ministry. This was not, she was not there to just serve alongside her husband. That's right. She had her own ministry among women there. Um, and interestingly enough, she initiated ministries to the Thai people, hmm. which I don't know that I knew. Um, and she even learned their language, which is a difficult language. Yes, it is. Translated the Gospel of Matthew what? Uh, for them and then sent uh, like sent letters back to America begging people to come and work among the Thai. Is that right? And so it's just it's fascinating to see how how much uh, her her ministry kind of had ripple effects. Right. Um, she also took care of her husband while he was in an internment camp. Mm-hmm. Um, I cannot imagine how ho- how horrible that was. Yeah. Um, she's when her husband goes in, she's pregnant. Right. Um, she has a baby. She's begging people to like help uh, to to let her in to take care of her yeah. husband. Because at that point in time, they didn't feed them when yep. they were in there, so she had to feed her husband who was in jail yep. and her baby. Yeah, and so it's it's just a crazy awful time and then not long after that she actually dies of a tropical fever. That's right. And so does her child. Right. Um, and that it's it's just heartbreaking when you think about the end of her story. Uh, but I I always want to highlight um, I think she was very willing to pay that price. Mm. Um, I think she if you look back at her early journals, I mm. think she knew that God was calling her to do this mm-hmm. and that she was willing to go whatever the price was. Yeah. Yeah, if you look at her early journals, in fact, if you look even at the proposal letter that Adonai wrote to her father, it was, when, when we leave, we won't come back, we'll probably die overseas. What a great lady, though. Uh, Ann Judson has always been a real hero, even in our family. We talk about Ann and, and the things that uh, the things that she did. I don't think I realized that she was uh, a Thai missionary as well and translated into Thai, so thanks for sharing that. So I do want to caveat. She didn't go to Thai, That's Thailand. That's right, and just worked with Thai she people. She worked with Thai refugees mm-hmm. in Burma. Um, but, yeah, I, I think it's fascinating. I had no idea that she'd done that. What a great story. Anna, every week brings us uh, just little tidbits of, of information and uh, motivating uh, stories from history. As people just join God on his mission, God's mission captivates uh, their imagination. We seem to do great things. Thanks a ton for sharing. Well, Keelan, we still in part of our, our series on uh, caring for missionaries and missionary care. And today we have a great opportunity to have one of our friends, one of our students, uh, actually one of our bosses because he's a trustee. That's right. Ryan Martin with us today uh, as he's going to join us. Ryan, thanks so much for being with us on The Scent Life. Hey, great to be here. Glad to be on the program. Ryan, I am really excited about getting to do this. So to catch you up on the conversation, um, we have had... This will be week four, I think it is, Scott, that we have been focusing specifically on the intersection of missionary care and mobilization. I think, uh, we think here that those two issues actually go together. They're not two separate issues. They're issues that when you do one well, it it actually leads and helps do the other one well. And your book is where we're landing the plane on this conversation because it seems to be such a good place to land the plane on it. That's right. So, Ryan, you wrote a book. Uh, holding the rope, how the local church can care for its sent ones. Uh, can you tell to us just a few minutes about why you wrote the book? Where did the idea come from? And uh, you know, what concerns are you trying to address in this book? 
Sure. Yeah, this book really kind of came out of my doctor of ministry program. Uh, I was serving previously um, to the current role that I'm in, was on staff at a local church for 13 years as missions pastor, and really began to see uh, just the desire for uh, us as a church to take on that role of missionary care all the more. Uh, felt like from a mobilization standpoint, we were sending teams faithfully, uh, but really kind of um, that care was only happening kind of in the rise and fall of uh, as much as we were we were sending teams. And there was a lot of in-between time that was uh, in between those short-term trips that we could be providing ongoing missionary care. Uh, particularly, there were uh, a number of, of different uh, missionary units that were out on the field that we had either sent or even recommissioned out onto the field, which I note there in the book, that mm. uh, we're just having uh, some various struggles, um, you know, that whether it be their children acclimating to the field or, or a, a couple that were be- had become empty nesters mm. as their kids had grown up on the field and, and moved on, gone to college and, and so forth. And they were uh, experiencing some ministry transition as well, coming from more of a tribal uh, ministry setting to more of an urban setting, working mm. with refugees and just all the um, layers that comes with ministry uh, in that sort of context. And so began to really see just the desire to uh, help care for them in an ongoing way and really to, as you mentioned, mobilize uh, more of the church in missionary care uh, and to be faithful senders, uh, not just seeing that stop at the commissioning service, uh, but to see that role of, of caring for our supported workers be an ongoing kind of thing. And so, yeah, as I uh, was uh, studying uh, further in, in my doctor of ministry program, uh, really began to just have a, a deeper passion for that and a desire to put forth uh, a strategy that would really allow a church of any size to be able to uh, care for their sent ones well, uh, be it from pre-field, on-field, and post-field care. So, Ryan, you are talking about member care here, missionary support. Uh, we've done a bit of this in the last few episodes, but I'd love to hear, can you give us your definition, so to speak? When you say uh, member care, what do you have in mind? How would you define, perhaps, this idea of member care? Sure. I think, simply, I would say it's the investment of resources, uh, be it by a mission agency, ascending church, or even related organizations uh, that would help kind of nurture and develop uh, missionary care uh, and missionary help develop really missionary personnel. Um, so and I, I kind of take um, a lot of that even from uh, Kelly O'Donnell's um, work as he's written extensively on just missionary care and member care uh, on the field, but really kind of taking uh, resources, uh, be it from a pre-field, on-field, or post-field care, and as a, as an agency or even as the sending church, uh, being that kind of primary sending agent uh, to help bolster, uh, nurture, support, and send our uh, missionaries out uh, in a manner that is even as Third John says. You know, Ryan, I know that uh, you did this research as part of your Doctor of Ministry program here at Southeastern, and, uh, you know, it's always exciting for us to to see the work that our students do in the classroom, uh, make it out of the classroom into the local church and really be a resource. And so you've taken your research project from your studies and you've written this book, Holding the Rope, How a Local Church Can Care for Its Sent Ones. One of the chapters that I was really particularly interested in, uh, you go into a lot of detail 
just showing the biblical support for missionary care. Sometimes we we just lean on the pragmatic support. Hey, it it it, it helps. It you know it, it's it's care. But you you show how the Bible actually speaks to this topic of member care, missionary care. Can you talk a bit about what you discovered as you were doing your research into the into the Bible, the biblical part? For showing how it is and why is it that churches should care for missionaries? Sure. Oh, yeah, I think you're right. We oftentimes jump to the pragmatic and kind of what does that strategy look like in terms of nuts and bolts without really going back to the why mm. or the foundation of it, which we want to be able to uh, gain from, from the scriptures. Um, you know, I think we focus so much on just the sending aspect, uh, even from Acts 13, where uh, Barnabas and, and Paul are sent out from the church at Antioch. But um, I think we see really in a number of places where uh, the Bible really speaks to missionary care. And so what I aim to do in, in that chapter is to really unpack three different passages of Scripture. Uh, one is looking at 3 John uh, verses 5 through 8, which touches on uh, pre-filled missionary care as John is commending his friend Gaius uh, in receiving itinerant missionaries uh, into uh, his church and then sending them uh, back out onto the field in a manner worthy of the Lord and supporting them in, in such a way. And so uh, what I'm aiming to do really with that passage is to show that really the missionary care does not just happen once our missionaries reach the field, but even happens um, pre-field. Uh, I feel like as we call out the called and uh, are assessing and, and equipping them well, that uh, it's a case that those relationships begin to develop and to nurture. And so we're going to know what are those things that we need to pay particular attention to in, in areas that these uh, particular missionaries are going to need uh, special care in, uh, be it um, spiritual, uh, emotional, mental, physical health, uh, be it relational health, um, how are their spiritual disciplines being uh, developed and, and nurtured? And then uh, utilizing kind of uh, some of that spiritual development that we're doing with them pre-field uh, and then carrying that on through as we continue to follow up with them and check in on them uh, both um, on the field, but then also, too, just through um, ongoing conversations with them as they're serving there in their particular locations uh, once they once they do reach um, reach the field. Uh, and so really third John five through eight kind of unpacks this idea that we need to send in support in a manner worthy of the Lord because these missionaries are going out for the sake of the name to, to carry that gospel message. And, um, you know, they're not just going out to provide humanitarian aid, but really to take um, the uh, faith that's once for all delivered to the saints and to take that gospel message. And so we need to support them, uh, giving them our best uh, in terms of uh, our support for them. And then on the field care, I looked at Philippians 2, verses 25 to 30, uh, where Paul uh, is sending back his friend and, and ministry partner, Epaphroditus, back to the church at Philippi. Of course, if you've done any extensive reading or study of that book, you know that that is a church that was uh, deeply invested in partnership with Paul, uh, and particularly so in sending Epaphroditus. And so um, Paul is really commending Epaphroditus' sacrifice, even risking his own life uh, to send uh, to be sent by the church at Philippi to provide care for him and to support and encourage him there as, as he was on the field and, and even at times uh, in prison uh, for the sake of preaching the gospel. And so really unpacking there with on-the-field care, how we need to uh, support our missionaries, both uh, through practical means like um, sending 
uh, financial resources, sending care packages, uh, having ongoing conversations uh, with them on the field, but then also uh, sending um, some of our own to uh, walk alongside them and to do member care visits uh, where we're not doing so much of a ministry task per se, but really just going to to love on them, support them, encourage them uh, in their labors. And then post-field care, looking at Acts 14, uh, as Paul and Barnabas returned from their first missionary journey, it says there at the end of uh, chapter 14 that they spent no little time with the church at Antioch. And so it wasn't that they uh, went back to um, the mission agency first, uh, if there was even that uh, during that day, but no, they went back to their local church because they felt uh, their responsibility um, to that church at Antioch to be able to go back, to pour back into that church, to report uh, how the Lord had opened up a door of faith for the Gentiles uh, to come to faith in Christ and wanted to celebrate that with them, but then also to, to utilize that opportunity to mobilize more uh, to go uh, to the nations. And so really unpacking through those three um, passages of Scripture, what pre-field, on-field, and post-field care looks like. Yeah, that's great. You know, I really like the, again, I like, I know that this was done primarily as part of your doctor of ministry, but I think it's really significant that you take the time just to show the biblical support for this. Because obviously, as, as those of us who believe that the Bible is authoritative, that believe that the Bible is sufficient and it's our guide for, for doctrine, for life, for ministry, as we see uh, these things demonstrated and taught in Scripture, it relates back to us how we ought to engage in our church's ministry that itself. And so it, it's, it doesn't just, it's not designed just to make us feel guilty, but again, I can, I can kind of pass off on things that just may seem like good suggestions. But when you've shown uh, in your book that this is a biblical pattern uh, and that it was essential for the success of the early church in its missionary career, then it, again, it just raises, I think, the, the obligation, it raises the responsibility that we have as Christians for doing this type of ministry, caring for those that we send out. Yeah, you raise the uh, uh, standard, I guess, concerning member care and missionary care from, hey, this is a really good idea, to this is a mandate given to us by the, by the scriptures. And I think that's a really helpful place for us to start with this idea. And so I appreciate the fact that you do that. Another thing that I really want to point out, you talked about the different phases of missionary care, and you bring up post-field care as a, a thing that is of significance here. And I like the fact that you've done that. Uh, what do you mean exactly? Pull that one out for me for a minute. When people come back, why in the world do they need care? Sure. <laughs> well, uh, home doesn't necessarily feel like home anymore. Um, you know, even having just returned back on a, on a short-term, uh, from a short-term mission trip myself, uh, it's a case where, again, life has gone on uh, back here on the home front, and life has, has uh, gone on for me as well. And so I'm experiencing a lot on the field that is uh, maybe a little bit hard to uh, be able to, to relate to those that, that sent me just because they didn't experience mm. the same things that I did, even though I want to be able to share in those uh, memories and experiences and opportunities that the Lord uh, provided for us. And yet at the same time, there was life that happened back here at home. Uh, but, you know, you multiply that, you know, not just in weeks or months, but even years. And, um, you know, it's a case where for a missionary, uh, their home now becomes where they're serving. Mm. Uh, and oftentimes, um, they come back and they feel more like sojourners and strangers uh, here in what was their their home country uh, for a for a period of time. 
uh, and they really feel more at home back where they're serving and where the Lord has, has called them uh, to have their feet planted. And so, yeah, I think it's a case where we need to receive them back well as a church, um, not only from just a logistical standpoint in terms of, hey, do they have uh, housing set up? Do they have transportation set up? Are there schooling needs that we need to attend to? Are there things like um, uh, debriefing and things like that? Uh, but then also, too, just being able to fold them back into the life of the church, to be able to utilize them as uh, a mobilization tool to be able to help uh, utilize their gifts and talents uh, to allow them to speak back into the life of the church and encourage encourage the church, not only in their faithful sending of they themselves, but then also to, to be able to um, really be a cheerleader and an advocate to um, you know, mobilize more to go to the field. And so, yeah, I think it, a church needs to be able to have a team in place, um, you know, even with on-the-field care. That's where I um, uh, roll out kind of this idea of advocacy teams, and it really would be those advocacy teams that could be small groups, uh, could be Sunday school classes uh, that serve in that capacity, but really it's that team that will then help to uh, be kind of that bridge for those missionaries to be able to get those practical needs met, but then also are going to be really uh, the team that is the the first point and the first stopping point that those missionaries would be able to then kind of unpack some of their um, highs and lows and just the things that they need to kind of um, unwind about um, and debrief on as they come back from the field. And so really looking at ways in which churches can uh, both plan, prepare, and then provide just uh, adequate presence, not only meeting practical needs, but then also to meeting spiritual needs and and really just being a place where missionaries can can rest and recharge and refuel uh, for another season of ministry. That's great, man. Yeah, it's, again, it's we often forget that uh, the, the the energy we put into the appointment of missionaries and the training and the care on the field, sometimes we just neglect the fact or forget that when when people come off the field, there's a moment and a season of of need, and the church takes responsibility in that. Ryan, you know the the focus of your book is on how the local church can care for its sent ones. I, our concern is that often uh, those in the local church almost succumb to responsibility for mission training and perhaps missionary care to a mission sending agency. But you really hone in on the fact that it's the local church who bears this responsibility. Talk to us a minute about how you understand the responsibilities of, a, say, a mission agency and then the responsibilities of a local church and why you place such emphasis on the local church as this member care agent for missionaries. Sure. Well, I think, I mean, again, going back to uh, your earlier question um, and just, you know, admonition of going back to the scriptures, I think, Again, we don't see a mission-sending agency, per se, in the scriptures that sent out Paul and Barnabas or even any other missionaries, for that matter. We see the local church being that. And so I think uh, if we're going to ground our missionary care in the scriptures, we need to see that the local church is that primary uh, means and ends through which the Great Commission is accomplished. Now, certainly, the Lord has uh, seen fit to allow other parachurch ministries, including mission agencies, to come about and to be able to provide specific care and resources um, and tools by which uh, they are adequately equipped and, and gifted with um, that they're going to be able to specify and be a little bit more specific and nuanced in terms of uh, those resources that they uh, can provide. Uh, everything from just even having um, folks that are in kind of their member care office and otherwise that maybe have served on the field or, and are going to have 
maybe a little bit more uh, practical knowledge and just wherewithal to know, hey, this is these are things that um, we really need to make sure are addressed as it pertains to missionary care on the field. Uh, and so we're going to be able to kind of nuance our focus and resources in that way. Um, and then also, too, I think it's just a case where, um, you know, in terms of just the budget and, and other resources that can be put forth from a mission agency, I think, you know, there is a particular place for them. Mm-hmm. And yet at the same time, I think uh, the local church um, is uh, tasked with and charged with uh, missionary care because they're going to know their members the best. And so you even take the aspect of pre-field care. Um, even as we look to assessment tools to be able to d- discern the readiness of a particular missionary, you know, that church is being able to uh, see that member uh, in day-to-day ministry and be able to know them uh, frontwards and backwards, uh, and hopefully they're, they're discerning uh, the readiness of their members. Whereas, uh, you know, if you don't utilize the, the local church in the, even in that way, I think, you know, a missionary can uh, answer the questions in all the right ways with a mission agency's assessment, uh, and yet they may not uh, be as ready as maybe what that local church would be able to sign off on and say, yes, we have great confirmation and conviction that we need to send uh, these members because they are the best of the best that we that we have. Um, but there too, I think even as those relationships are honed and developed in kind of the greenhouse or ecosystem of the local church, if you will, uh, that local church is then going to know how best to walk alongside their members once they reach the field. And then, as we noted from Acts 14, that's where Paul and Barnabas come back to because there is just that uh, sense of uh, accountability and relationship that is developed between a sender and sent one um, that that missionary returns back, not first and foremost to Richmond, Virginia, or any other mission agency address, but to that local church. And so um, I think it's it's key. And yet, I think there's a great partnership that can be forged between the church and the agency. I think you just have to kind of develop kind of what does that covenant look like between those different entities to know who is playing what role, you know, and even as it pertains to, you know, if there are areas of struggle that come up and things that need to be kind of counseled through, who plays what role, uh, and where can you both work in partnership together? Uh, to see that adequate care is addressed. Yeah, Ryan, I think it is very significant that you spend time in the way that you've structured this book to talk about the distinctions in role between local church and missions agency and how there's actually a place for both. It's real easy for us, I think, um, to get into an all one, not the other, pitting one against another kind of scenario with this conversation. And so I think it's helpful that you you carve out space for both and demonstrate that there can actually be a healthy partnership between the two in doing this work. So I think that's a really, really important thing that you've added to the conversation here. Uh, I want to press forward a bit, though, and, and talk in a more practical space. So as you've done this work, you actually did a bit of research with churches that are involved in or have an actual care process in place. I would love for you, if you could, to unpack for us in your research on this, what are some of the best practices that you've discovered along the way where you're like, hey, this church was killing it, and here's what they were doing? Sure. Yeah, you know, I, I look at both a small-sized church, a medium-sized church, and then a, a mega church, uh, just to be able to show and to paint the picture that, hey, uh, you don't have to be uh, one of the top 10 mega churches in the United States to uh, be able to, to take on missionary care. You can be a small-sized church, which most uh, SBC churches 
you know, or about 150 members or less. And so how can you best do that? Um, and really the strategy I set forth is such that a church can take that strategy and uh, massage it how they will to be able to take different uh, bits and pieces of it and to be able to hone it for their own context. And so um, I think some areas that I found that churches did well in, um, one would be just uh, the assessment process. So being able to, again, call out the call and to be able to give uh, your potential missionaries opportunities for practical ministry uh, while they are preparing to go, such that uh, it's not like they just get on the plane and then step off in, in Delhi or in Kathmandu and they're ready to go. Uh, no, it's a case where they've already been doing ministry, be it through personal evangelism, be it through discipleship, be it in leading small group Bible studies and things of that nature to be able to hone those skills and to be able to prepare themselves well for cross-cultural ministry and, and doing that even in a cross-cultural context in their local context. And so that was one area that I found uh, that churches did well uh, as far as pre-field care and just pre-field assessment and training. Uh, on the field care, uh, again, I think the advocacy team uh, is really a, a great place to begin, be it that you're a small, medium, or larger-sized church. Uh, it could be that you have uh, particular individuals that are then uh, tied to particular partners on the field, or it could be that you've got enough of um, kind of a groundswell of folks that are wanting to take on missionary care to be able to develop you know, four to six members per advocacy team that are then assigned to a particular missionary. And it's really those that are uh, doing the ongoing care through both communication, uh, but then also too sending care packages and sending missionary care teams uh, to be able to visit uh, your partners on the field. And then in post-field care, I think, um, where I found churches were uh, excelling were, again, just having a plan in place. So it's not like they arrive uh, back from the field and then you begin to put those um, plans in place, but rather you're providing enough of a runway, meeting with your missionaries over Zoom, over the phone, through email, even six months ahead of time mm -hmm. to be able to put a plan in place for what is it that they're, they're really going to need, both from a practical standpoint, but then also, too, helping to just press in and lean in on where they're at uh, physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, relationally, to be able to uh, really delve into some of those those deep uh, uh, corners, nooks and crannies of their life and of their ministry to be able to both uh, encourage and exhort them, uh, but then also, too, to help uh, nurture them uh, and send them back out again for a new season of ministry. Ryan, that is so helpful. Uh, I really appreciate the work that you have done here on this book. I also want to say thank you, by the way, for joining us for this conversation. Uh, I am very pleased that you have made this resource available. It's one that I'm looking forward to getting in the hands of some people. Uh, to that end, if you are listening with us today, I want to go ahead and let you know, like many of the other books that we uh, when we interview an author on here, we want to give away five copies of this book. So if you are listening with the first five people that email us at cgcs at sebts.edu, we'll give you a copy of Ryan's book here. Uh, I really think this is a valuable resource for a number of people. If you're a missionary on the field, this would be a great book to give back to your sending church. If you are a missions pastor or a pastor in a church that wants to start taking seriously the sending of your members uh, for the sake of the gospel, this is a book you need to 
pick up and think through. Uh, and then sit down next to your church practices and ask the hard questions about how we're going to accomplish these things. Uh, and so I, I think it's a real valuable tool. And Ryan, I want to say thank you to you for making it available to us. Uh, and just thank you for joining us today. Yeah, it's great. Great to be here. And, and thanks too to Southeastern. I mean, it was uh, a privilege to be able to uh, Dr. Hilder sit under your teaching as well as others and, and to utilize um, just the classroom work as well as just the camaraderie with other students uh, to be able to give shape uh, to this project and, and really just the outlet to be able to develop uh, such a resource uh, that would be uh, a very practical and needed tool for the church that I pray uh, helps to serve churches of, of any size well as they put together a missionary care strategy. Man, it was, all, it was an honor to have you as a student and appreciate you being on uh, on with us today. And we're so thankful for those of you who have tuned in and stuck with us through this entire mini-series on mobilization and missionary care. And uh, we have uh, Dr. Ryan Martin as our final send-off for that. And we do encourage you, uh, take what you've learned and, and package it together uh, for your churches. Anything that we can do uh, from Southeastern's perspective, don't hesitate to reach out to us. Uh, we'd love nothing more than to come alongside you as you seek to care for those uh, who are sent out from your church. Again, if there's any way that uh, you can, uh, that we can do that, don't hesitate to let us know. Feel free to pass this podcast on to friends, colleagues, others. Uh, like us, uh, subscribe, and uh, we look forward to you being back with us next week. Thanks for joining us on The Scent Life. So, Keelan, we just had a conversation with uh, Ryan Martin about his book. And uh, one of the things that he mentioned was that the book he wrote was a product of his D-Men studies here at Southeastern. Yeah, so to end our episode today, what we really wanted to do was give the audience an opportunity to hear a little more about what it means to have a D-Men project in the first place, right? That's right. Yeah, I mean, the, the D-Men is a, is a unique degree. It's an unusual degree. It's something that we offer at Southeast, which is, I think, a real service to the church. And so we thought what we would do uh, is bring in Dr. Tate Cockrell, who is the director of our uh, D-Men studies here at Southeastern, just to answer a handful of questions that people may be wondering about this uh this demon. It's not a demon study, is it, Tate? It is not a demon study, but frequently when I'm on the road and I'm recruiting and I say demon studies, people come up and say, demon studies? Like, what is that? It's pretty funny. <laughs> so demon stands for a doctor of ministry, and it is a degree that we offer here uh, at Southeastern. So, so Dr. Cockrell, you're the director of our uh, doctor of ministry studies, and can you just explain a minute to uh, to our listeners, what what is a Doctor of Ministries? What makes it unique uh, and as, as a degree type? Yeah, sure. So the Doctor of Ministries, a 31-hour, we call it a professional doctorate. So unlike like a terminal degree, like a PhD or an EDD, a DMIN is a professional doctorate. So it's skill-based. It's not like philosophically based. You get philosophy and you get theology and good theory, but the bulk of it is it's a skill-based mm -hmm. degree. So when uh, when men and women come in to get the degree, they come in because they want to get better at something. They don't want to just know more about it. They want to be able to do something better as a result of getting the degree. So when they come in to get the degree, uh, we have about 11 different specializations okay. here at Southeastern. So let's just say, for instance, like with Ryan Martin, if uh, he just wrote his book on caring for uh, sent ones, 
Um, so his uh, specialization likely was uh, missions. Right. And so uh, because he got his specialization in missions, he would take courses specifically to help him become a better missiologist. Mm. So he's not going to just know more about missions. He's going to know how to convert that, as he demonstrated mm. in his book and in his DMIN project. Here's how we translate theory and philosophy into practice and actually being able to do something better. In his case, how do we help individuals and churches know how to care better for missionaries that are out there in the world? Right, yeah. So that sounds great, right? Uh, And for our audience, we have a number of folk who find themselves presently in ministry. They find themselves in in leadership, either overseas or, or in a missions agency, or perhaps they're a pastor of a local church. Who's the right person for a DMIN degree? Um, every one of those people that you just named is, uh, is, is a good candidate for the DMIN. Here's the great thing about the doctorate ministry is that it's specifically designed for people who are actively engaged in ministry. So their primary identity is not going to be as a student. You know, like, like when you get a Ph.D., I always jokingly tell people when you get a Ph.D., it kind of owns your life. You're a Ph.D. student, first, second, third, fourth, and everything mm. else comes in like a distant fifth through tenth. But at the, with the DMIN, basically what we're looking at is you're doing ministry, you're involved in ministry all the time. Uh, so the degree program is about half as long as a traditional doctorate. You're only taking one class every single term whenever you come in. Uh, and again, it's going to be practically based. So they can do it from anywhere in the world. Um, you can do our, our modified residency program, which brings you onto our campus 12 days mm-hmm. over two years. But if somebody's in another part of the world and they don't want to have to make the trip at all, they can do it entirely online. Mm-hmm. And so they don't actually even have to relocate to the States uh, to be able to do it. So it's anybody who's currently doing ministry, got a family, they're a great candidate for that. If they just want to get better at the skill of doing some kind of ministry. Yeah, that's it, it's great. You know, we all work in the DMIN program. We teach in it. We administer it. Uh, can you, Tate, if you don't mind, just give a, a few words of description? How does it even work? And then what might a person need to do if they're interested in knowing more about the Doctor of Ministry at Southeastern and what would the application process yeah, look like? That's great, Scott. Thanks. So um, how the DMIN works is uh, basically you apply for the program, and I'll tell you in a minute how to do that. But you apply, you come into the program. Basically, you take one class every term, and we alternate between a class that's online and a class that is in-person if you're doing the modified residency. So your, your first class is going to be an online class like orientation, and then you're going to come in for a seminar. Every time you come to the campus, you're only here for three days. So that's the reason why I say you're here 12 days over two years. So you come to the campus twice a year for two years, three days each time, so six days a year, 12 days total over those two years. So we give students a syllabi about five months in advance. Uh, the other great thing about a DMIN, unlike normal cor- courses like mm-hmm. a master's hybrid or something like that where you have things that are due every week, mm-hmm. it's ideal for people whose schedules are, are really variable, right? Because we give you a syllabus five months in advance and say, here's all the stuff that you have due like five months from now. You just figure out the schedule that works best for you, and if you want to do all that this month and not have anything to do for the next three months, Mm. you can do that. You want to spread it out a little bit every day for the next five months, you can do that. Whatever works for your schedule, that's what you do. And so you prep for that one class for for the next five months. Uh, whenever you finish with that class, you go into the next class, and we give you a syllabus about five months in advance. There's a little bit of overlap between a couple of the classes because we do four a year. Uh, but we basically give you anywhere from you know three to five months to be able to prepare for it. Uh, they do it on their own schedule, 
and then we meet together as a cohort of students, usually classes that range anywhere from four to 15 students mm-hmm. in a class. And when they show up, lots of peer-based learning, lots of access to faculty members. The one thing that we hear a ton of from our students is they love access to faculty. Mm-hmm. So where in a master's program, a professor stands up front and he teaches. And he, they, you know, I think our professors mm-hmm. here at Southeastern do a really good job of relating well to our students. Like all of my students have my cell phone number. They've mm-hmm. been in my house. They pet my dog. Some of them have even sat on my Harley. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's a, it's there's a relational aspect that happens in the D-men that I think our students really, really like. So they're basically here, you know, a couple of times a year. Doing they do schoolwork year round, but again, it's totally on their schedule. Right. It's not. I got something to do this week, and I got something to do next week, and I got some something to do next week. They don't have any of that. So that's kind of how the program works. Uh, it's two years in classes. The last year is just simply writing a project mm-hmm. that's highly customizable for a student's local context. Right. So like in Ryan's case, he was super passionate about writing for How Do You Care for Missionaries. And because he was passionate about that, we allowed him to tailor his entire mm-hmm. D-Men project about that and then eventually became his book. If, uh, if your listeners are interested in applying, it's pretty easy to both get more information and apply. It's simply www.sebts.edu forward slash DMIN. And if they go to DMIN, they can get all the information they need. If they decide that they want to apply, same email address, www.sebts.edu forward slash and then apply okay. instead of DMIN. And that will get them all the information that they need. Excellent. Perfect. Yeah, we would really encourage any of our listeners who are curious about a doctor of ministry. Maybe you, again, as uh, Dr. Cockrell said, you're involved in uh, in some element of, of ministry, local church ministry, denominational ministry as a missionary, and you're thinking there may be an area you want to sharpen your skills in or uh, some reading you want to catch up on, this would be a great way uh, to do that. Uh, we are excited about inviting you to be part of our Doctor of Ministry program. Just check our website out and reach out. Dr. Cockrell and his staff would be a great help to you. And uh, so we would encourage you to do that. And then, um, Keelan, if somebody produces a very good uh, product and then they write a book, we'll have them on the Scent Life podcast. Yeah, absolutely. If you do what Ryan has done here, uh, we'd love to have an opportunity to interview you as well when your book comes out. Hey, welcome back. Um, now we're back here in, in the studio with Dr. George Robinson as we talk about Out of the Tower. George, what do we have this week as we think about living our lives on mission? Yeah, so we've been framing up all of these segments using the core missionary task, entry, evangelism, disciple-making, uh, gathering together, leadership development, partnership, and exit. And so uh, over the last several segments, we've talked through entry strategies, evangelism strategies, and then last time we talked through a simple brand new believer disciple making strategy called the 411. Well, this time I want to talk through a format for when you begin to gather disciples together. Okay. Um, a, a format for reproducing disciple making. Super. Right. So this is something um, called the three thirds process. And honestly, it's not something that a bunch of missionaries came up with. It's actually a pedagogical tool yeah. uh, that has been used for centuries. Uh, when people gather together, the if you've had a lesson, mm-hmm. then the tendency is you go back and review the content of the previous lesson, and then you introduce a new segment of content, and then you 
look for a way to apply it. So the three-thirds okay. is looking back, looking up, and looking forward. All right. So when I gather together with a group of people that I'm discipling, the first thing I want to do is look back to our last meeting. And there are a couple of objectives in the looking back time. I want to, first of all, review the content, and I do that by asking questions uh, of them related to the content from the previous time, and that way they can kind of fill in the gaps. And then the second thing after reviewing content is I want to uh, look for opportunities to bring clarification. So content, then clarification. So what questions do they have related to that content? That allows me to hear back. Instead of it being a monologue of me Mm. teaching them, I'm listening to them and hearing what their questions are, and I'm able to fill in those gaps. And then the third aspect of looking back, after I've reviewed content and brought clarification, is I want to focus in on coaching. Where are you getting stuck in applying what we learned the last time we were together? So tell me about that, and then I want to coach them Hmm. uh, so that they can begin to maximize their application of what they learned in our previous lessons. That's great. So that's looking back. That's the first third. The second third of the time is focused on um, a new concept, Mm -hmm. new content, and then a new competency. Okay. And so the new concept, a concept is an overarching kind of an umbrella. So this week, our concept is disciple-making strategy, That's right. right? And the content that I'm talking to you about is the three-thirds, three-thirds process. The competency would then be putting that down as a tool and then giving you some sort of assignment mm. for you to work through that tool for yourself. And so a competency is something that you actually put into practice. And so I want to cast vision and then have them get reps uh, within our meeting, practicing uh, using Mm -hmm. that three-thirds tool with one another to make sure that they know not just what it is, but how to use it themselves. That's great. So looking back, looking up, and then finally in your meeting by looking forward. And looking forward is for application. And so the three things I'm looking for there is repetitions, set goals. Hmm. How many times are you going to utilize this tool over the next week? Uh, The second thing is rhythms. Um, I'm looking at uh, how is this changing your rhythms? What needs to change in your weekly rhythms in order to implement this? And then the third thing is reproduction. Who else are you going to train? And so you don't really know something until you've taught it to someone else. That's right. And so using that three-thirds process when you gather together, it really creates a framework for reproduction Mm -hmm. um, because you're working through by reviewing content, by bringing clarification, by coaching, new concepts, new content, new competency, reps, rhythms, and reproduction. That's great. You know, we can use this if you have a small group from your church or a Sunday school class, but maybe we ought to let people in on the secret. They were actually training every person listening to be a church planter. There you go. Right? That's every, the whole point. Every person listening week after week after week, we just give you a few little steps on how you can start a church in your home uh, uh, at your at your workplace, uh, where you go to school, and this section is how you gather people together. What happens when you get these people in your dorm room, around a coffee shop table? What do you teach them? What's the process? So no matter where you are, these three-thirds give us a great opportunity for ongoing mentorship, but really this idea of reproducing that group. Yeah, so when we gather, this is a disciple-making strategy for gathering. That's right. Thanks. Appreciate that. That's great help. Thanks, yeah. Dr. Robinson.